Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Princeton Tory Podcast. My name is Billy Wade of the class of 2023 and your host for today's incredibly special podcast with an incredibly special guest. Conservatism and the Republican Party are seemingly at a crossroads. The party is deeply divided by ideological disagreements and what to do with former President Donald Trump. Because of this, Republican Party membership has decreased and many prominent conservatives actively campaigned against the, the former president in the November election. Some conservatives wish to continue with the style and substance of Trumpism, while others see that recipe as disastrous for the conservative cause and the nation as a whole. To discuss these and other issues, we have with us Princeton professor Robert P. George. Robert P. George holds Princeton's celebrated McCormick Chair in Jurisprudence and is the Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He has served as Chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, and before that, on the President's Council on Bioethics and as a Presidential Appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is a former Judicial Fellow at the Supreme Court of the United States, a graduate of Swarthmore College. He holds MTS and JD degrees from Harvard University and the degrees of DPhil, BCL, DCL, and DLIT from Oxford University. It is an honor for us to have the man the New York Times once called the most influential conservative in America on the leading conservative podcast at Princeton. And while it may be an unofficial honor, Professor George is consistently the best-dressed professor at Princeton. He has kept the three-piece suit in style. Thank you for coming on, Professor George. Thank you, Billy. It's a great pleasure to be on with you. <laughs> and so just before we dive into the weeds a little bit, I, I'm actually personally very curious. What inspired and when did you start wearing three-piece suits? Well, uh, I was inspired by the fact uh, that it was wintertime and I was getting cold. <laughs> so, so I started uh, buying suits with uh, with vests, uh, and then I rather liked the style. I, I liked the look, uh, so I began uh, uh, wearing my suits with vests, uh, even when it wasn't especially cold. Uh, I do, though, like to dress pretty formally for a class in particular, and uh, I do that really out of respect. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a great honor to be a university professor. It's a great honor to be a professor at Princeton. It's a very great honor to teach the courses that I teach at, at Princeton, constitutional interpretation and civil liberties. These were courses that were taught by my predecessors who were great men and great scholars, great teachers, Walter Murphy and before him, Alpheus T. Mason, and before him, Edward S. Corwin, and before him, Woodrow Wilson. That's the chain of McCormick professors of jurisprudence. So out of respect, uh, I, I try to, to, to dress well, dress really more or less formally, and also to sort of inspire a sense of the seriousness of the subject matter that we're addressing in these, in these mm -hmm. courses. These are, these are big, important issues uh, for all of us, uh, issues of constitutional law and, and civil liberties. I want to set a tone of, of, of seriousness, not, not, not necessarily somberness. Uh, you've been in my classes, so you know that it's not always somber. But the subject's a serious subject that's got to be addressed in a, in a serious way. So uh, there's, a, there's a little bit on the haberdashery front. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, sometimes things that start off as a practical matter can actually turn into something a bit more symbolic and 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 definitely honorific. And so um, that's true. In this that's case, really, that's wonderful. Yeah. I, yeah, because I was cold. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it all worked out. So we are recording this on March 1st, and CPAC held their annual conference this weekend. If it proved anything, it's that Donald Trump is still very relevant in the Republican Party and conservatism. So I think that this is a good place for us to start. Since about 2016, the word Trumpism has been presented by Trump supporters as synonymous with conservatism. But others argue that Trumpism is not, in fact, an actual coherent ideology or analogous with conservatism and less about policy and more about a particular style of politics. One of the first things I learned in my, friend, in my Princeton freshman writing seminar was to define your terms before using them. So Professor George, how would you define the term Trumpism? It's not a term I tend to use. It's certainly not the name of an ideology or a package of ideas about policy or, or values. Um, Donald Trump is not a convictional politician. Uh, he's certainly not in the mode of someone like Ronald Reagan, who's a classic conviction politician, or Franklin Delano uh, Roosevelt. Um, he's a transactional politician. Uh, <laughs> Trump is ambitious. Uh, he, he wanted to be president of the United States. He saw his chance. Uh, and so he did some deals. He's, he's the master of the art of the deal. He wrote the book, The Art of the Deal. His whole life has been about dealing. And he framed his political positions transactionally. Now, I don't doubt that there are some things that he actually believes in as a human being. Uh, certainly a consistent theme of Donald Trump's going well back into his life, um, uh, even before he was a politician, is that he's critical of free trade, at least as free trade has been practiced uh, in recent decades, and as it's been supported by the Democrat, by I'm sorry, by the Republican Party as well as the mm -hmm. Democratic Party, but by the Republican Party, um, he's been a critic of large-scale immigration. That's probably something he believes in. It's probably related to the same sense that American workers have to be protected. They have to be protected against foreign co uh, co uh, competitors. Uh, both in the sense of uh, businesses uh, being taken abroad and in the sense of uh, foreign workers coming across the border uh, to compete for uh, the jobs that, uh, that Americans should have. But beyond that, he seems to have shaped his views as part of a deal. He made a deal with pro-life Americans. Do Donald Trump had no history of being pro-life, quite the opposite. His, his views were as far from the pro-life position as possible. But he realized that uh, in the Republican Party, there is no way uh, you're, you're going to be able to uh, get ahead uh, while having the views he had about abortion, you know, believing in partial birth abortion, abortion all the way up to birth. Uh, you know, he was really quite extreme on the opposite side. So he did a deal. I, I doubt that he believes really much of anything on the subject, but he did a deal. And that's just one example. He, he's done similar sorts of deals uh, on, 
on other issues. So I don't see Trumpism as an ideology, certainly not a, a philosophy, not really even a family of, uh, of policy uh, positions. It's, um, if there is anything uh, corresponding to Trumpism in, in reality, it's, you know, Donald Trump's getting ahead, Donald Trump's becoming president, perhaps becoming president again. He was sending signals yesterday that he wants to give it another shot. But it's really all about him. And he's willing to make a deal with anybody who's willing to make a deal with him to, to get where he wants to be. Absolutely. And, and, and because Can I of contrast, that... Contrast it again with Reaganism. Yeah. Well, Re Reaganism was a set of policy positions that hung together as a, as a kind of philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, Roosevelt's New Deal package. Uh, even even Eisenhower's philosophy, Eisenhower's uh, reputed to be the great uh, pragmatist, uh, but he actually had a philosophy uh, and uh, he was pretty consistent uh, uh, about it. Um, there, there were respects in which he was a pragmatist, but, but he had a philosophy. Um, Trump doesn't really have one. And he didn't get into politics to advance such a philosophy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 and because of that, and certainly other grievances, um, the Republican Party is currently within, within a certain level of civil war, which I think is very fair to say. You know, last night we heard Trump uh, threatening those who voted for his, his impeachment. Um, and then just before him, Representative Jim Jordan of, of Ohio called Mr. Trump the leader of the conservative movement and the, the conservative party. Um, so, you know, it, it's certainly speculation, but what direction do you see the Republican Party moving over the next few years? Is it more Trumpian or could it actually fall into, you know, what it used to be 10, 15 years ago or something completely different? Well, Trump's cold eyed transactionalism enabled him to see something that the Republican establishment had failed to see something very important, which led to his actually conquering, uh, defeating the Republican establishment and even being elected president of the United States. For much of my lifetime, the Republican establishment has been happy to have the votes of Christians and other social conservatives, but it hasn't much like them. <laughs> and it hasn't much like the, uh, the, the values that they stood for. So the Republican establishment was grudgingly willing to pay lip service to pro-life and pro-family values, conservative moral values, Judeo-Christian values, uh, grudgingly willing to do that in order to get their votes, but hoping and looking for a day when it would be possible to throw them overboard and to be the party that they thought would ultimately be the lasting winning party, which is a party as they saw it of uh, low taxes and uh, economic uh, free markets and social liberalism or social moderation, which really liberalism. Um, the Republicans thought that was the real future and they just had to get there. They thought that the social conservatives were a kind of uh, albatross around the neck of the Republican Party, dragging them down, costing them votes, especially among suburban voters and most especially among suburban women, the so-called moderates and, and all that. 
So this was the this was the view of the Republican establishment, and this was their hope. Trump perceived with his cold-eyed transactionalism that not only were they wrong, the establishment had the very reverse of the truth. The way to win was not strict free market, low tax, economic conservatisms uh, joined with social libertarianism or social liberalism. It was the opposite. It was social conservatism, cultural conservatism, joined to uh, a, uh, a kind of economic populism that was willing to let government intervene in the economy to protect the interests of the American working class. So the, Trump saw that the establishment had it completely wrong and he was entirely vindicated in this in 2016 when he defeated 17 Republican competitors or 16 was it or 17 uh, Republican competitors, probably a dozen of whom were very credible presidential candidates and then went on to defeat the establishment of the Democratic Party. There was no more establishmentarian a figure than Hillary Clinton and he managed to defeat her by tearing down the blue wall and winning Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Uh, now we know, because some, some really good social science work has been done, now we know that where the Republican establishment thought the winning margin was to be had, they thought that there was this quadrant of a, of a, of a graph where uh, you'd, you'd find a whole bunch of socially liberal and economically uh, libertarian pro-market people, that's actually empty territory. That's actually, you know, a handful of, 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 uh, of, of people, you know, uh, the, 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 that's the libertarian party. The, the bulk of the voters are in the other three quadrants. There are plenty of voters who are socially liberal and uh, economically liberal. Uh, there are plenty of voters who are socially conservative and economically conservative. But it also turns out there are plenty of voters, and these are the Trump core, who are economically populist or even liberal, but socially conservative. And there are very, very few voters who are economically conservative in the sense of market-oriented, low tax, low regulation, and uh, uh, socially liberal. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, obviously, I guess Trump hit upon, uh, he hit the right nail with the right hammer. Now, one of the more interesting things from the 2020 election was how down ballot Republicans outperformed Donald Trump. So would you say that that was more of a result of, you know, dislike for Trump, the person, but that he still kind of found some sort of secret for, for the Republican Party going forward? Or, or was there something else that can help explain that? It was not an issues election. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was an election about personalities. Uh, and Trump was the big, the big personality. What, what Biden had to do was basically stay out of the way because Trump <laughs> was going to bring out large numbers of Trump enthusiasts and large numbers of Trump haters. Uh, and that's 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 what was going to happen. Uh, so um, Joe Biden stayed locked away in his basement, didn't didn't campaign, didn't get in the way. Uh, and uh, the, the the Trump enthusiasts came out, and the Trump haters 
uh, came out and uh, uh, Trump ended up losing uh, the election. He, of course, refuses to, to say that he lost the election. He continues yeah. to say and maybe even believe. In fact, he probably does believe uh, that he uh, uh, that he won the election. But in any event, however, you, whatever your view is on, on that, uh, it was really all about Trump. And uh, it was not really so much about policies. Now, why did so many conservatives who have been historically, at least in recent decades, people who really cared about policy, why did so many gravitate to Trump? Why did they uh, become so intensely devoted to him as a person? I think it was the sense that the Republican Party has consistently let us down, especially us working class people, let us down by favoring the interests of the powerful and influential and that Trump fights for us. Uh, as you may know, Billy, I'm from West Virginia, born and bred in mm -hmm. West Virginia, grew up there. My family are all still uh, there. Uh, West Virginia is Trump country. And it's not simply because he'll protect the interests of uh, the economic interests of coal miners. It's the sense that people have, and I, I talk to people in my family down there, I talk to people I went to school with. Uh, it's the sense that Trump is a fighter and he will fight for us. George H.W. Bush was a dignified person, but he was an establishment figure and he really didn't care that much about us. George W. Bush, he was an establishment figure and he was a nice guy and he was even religious, but he wasn't a fighter and he didn't fight for us. John McCain was a great military guy and a great defender of, of America in the world, but he didn't really fight for us. Mitt Romney, well, you know, he's really an ultra establishment figure, super rich guy, uh, but not somebody who fights for us. It wasn't until Donald Trump came along, they believe, that someone would finally fight for us. Now, we might not like the way he lives his life. We certainly don't approve of his history of womanizing and terrible things he says and things he says about women and his, you know, his, his, his multiple marriages and girlfriends and everything. Um, people in West Virginia would say, no, 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 we're not, we're not. We're not for that. That's not why we like him. And in fact, we, we regret that, that he was like that. And, and we really hope he's changed and, and we trust that he's changed. But what we like is that he fights for us. He, he may be on wife number three. There may have been 28 girlfriends. He might be guilty of things women have accused him of, all that stuff. But he fights for us. And nobody before in our lifetimes has ever fought for us. Yeah, I... I think you're definitely onto something in terms of, you know, there has been a certain discontent um, of Republican voters with the Re Republican Party, with their nominees. And that's where Trump just presented something completely new and different, completely right. new and different who could be that fighter. But now expanding our view from just CPAC and the Republican Party, um, while the nation struggles with the COVID-19 pandemic, there seems to be another plague in the nation, increased politicization. Political violence over the past year has been chilling to watch on TV, none more so than the storming of the Capitol by President Trump supporters. 
Not since the Civil War has the United States been more disunited. So Professor George, how do you believe that unity can be found and what role does conservatism or conservatives have in that process? Cornel West and I put out an op-ed um, just before the election uh, called Honesty and Courage. And it was really a plea to both the progressive side, Professor West's side and the conservative side, my side, uh, to start exemplifying some honesty and courage. It began by saying our poor, polarized, damaged country can only be saved now by honesty and courage. Those are the virtues that are, that are lacking. Uh, in our hyper-partisanship, people are dishonest in trying to advance the causes of their respective sides. We see dishonesty on the conservative side. We just see dishonesty on the progressive side. Way, way, way too much of it on both sides. And a conservative like me has to acknowledge I'm seeing it on my side as well as seeing it on the progressive side. A progressive like Cornell has to be willing to say, you know, I'm seeing it on my side, the progressive side, as well as on the on the conservative side. And then we need courage. We need, number one, the courage to be honest. <laughs> so these are related virtues. But also the, the courage to step away from the polarization, to stop being tribal, to stop craving and relying on and fearing losing the approval of our own tribe. Tribalism is killing this country. No, it's fine to have political parties. It's fine to have political differences. Washington warned from the beginning against political parties. But I, you know, I, I, I don't think it was necessarily catastrophic that we got political parties. It was probably inevitable that we were going to get political parties. And they immediately became polarized. I mean, the Federalists and the Jeffersonians, the first two political parties, the Jeffersonians, otherwise known as the Democratic Republicans, were really polarized. And there was a serious question in 1800 about whether the, the country would survive uh, the extreme uh, polarization. In fact, when I think about our situation now, historically, I think the closest parallel is 1800. I pray that it's not 1860, but uh, I, I think it's probably 1800, which was pretty bad, uh, really bad. So we need courage to stand up in the face of what's going on in our own tribe and say, no, no, this guy's is not the way to go. Now, neither Cornell nor I is asking for people to be centrists or moderates. Neither he nor I is a centrist or a moderate. He's the honorary co-chairman of Democratic Socialists of America. I, I'm a traditionalist, cultural, social conservative, right? So we, we're not saying, you know, somewhere meet in the middle. We're saying be honest and be courageous. And what we all ought to commit to, even though we have different understandings of them, what we all ought to commit to, what we all should be conservatives about, is conserving the principles of the American founding and the American, if I can use the political science term, regime. These are the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. These are the only things we have, Billy, to hold us together as a nation. We are not France. We are not Japan. We are not bound together by blood or soil or throne or altar. We don't have any source of unity beyond our shared allegiance to the principles on which the nation is founded, the principles of what the founders in Lincoln called Republican government, the principles again of the Declaration and the Constitution. That's got to be our source of unity. Now, there's a real question. 
is that source of unity thick enough to keep us together? Because it's actually pretty thin. We're not ethnically the same. We're very diverse ethnically. We're not religiously the same. We're very diverse religiously. We come from many, many different lands, many races, many religions. Not that that, hang, that, that holds us together. It's this fairly thin thing, a shared commitment to core principles. Now, I have faith, but it's faith. It's faith that it's thick enough that we can do this. We can sustain this experiment in Republican government. But it is an experiment, and I could be wrong. The founders could be proven wrong. It might be in the end that it all comes apart as it, as it did in the Civil War, uh, as it almost did in 1800, because just those shared abstract values are not enough to hold us together when you don't have shared ethnicity and shared religion and shared long cultural history and so forth. But I believe in it sufficiently strongly that I'm willing to sacrifice for it and take the risk for it and try to preserve it. And that's really why I do what I do. It's really at the foundation of my own personal vocation as a scholar and teacher, because I realize that unless our people are brought up from youth to understand these principles and their role in our civic life, their role in holding us together, it won't work. An ignorant people cannot be a people uh, held together by shared principles. If they're ignorant of the principles, if they don't know what they mean, they don't understand them, they won't appreciate them. They won't see their role. They won't make the commitments to them. They won't make the sacrifices for them that need to be made. They won't exemplify the honesty and courage that we need to exemplify if we're to keep this precious experiment in civil liberty and Republican government going and hand it on to the next generation. I, I really liked how you pointed out that it's something that, you know, we don't share with other Americans that blood and soil just by looking at another American or, or another person. You can't tell whether or not they are American, because what makes us American is that, you know, is that commitment to shared principles and those shared principles is not something you just see, but it's something you have to actually have a conviction of and learn about and educate yourself about and be educated through educators like yourself. Um, and like the faculty at Princeton. So your your history with Cornell West is 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 so wonderful and inspiring. But among the faculty at Princeton, how 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 has your experience been being someone who is very politically active and very outspoken? Um, and, and what have you learned about building bridges with those of other ideological leanings? Well, Billy, uh, I have to say, I am a blessed man. I am so fortunate to have made my career at Princeton University. I thank God every day. Honestly, I do. Um, there are many universities in this country that would not have tolerated uh, a person who not only holds the views that I hold about controversial, especially moral and social issues, but is outspoken uh, in defending them and promoting them. Uh, at many universities dominated uh, by the left in the way that they are, uh, the idea that I could have been hired, much less tenured, much less uh, installed in an endowed chair, much less 
permitted to build an entire program of my own, that was un would be unthinkable. Yet Princeton University, knowing full well what they were going uh, getting, because, uh, Billy, I was out of the closet <laughs> as what I am <laughs> from the moment I walked onto this campus to deliver my first uh, what we call job talk before I was hired. You know, the faculty, you give a talk to your to the faculty uh, of your department and they size you up and decide whether uh, they think you'd be a good colleague for them. So I was I was completely uh, open about my uh, political views and moral views, and religious views uh, when I came in and, and my political and moral and religious views were not the views held by anybody, I think, uh, in my department <laughs> or really at the university uh, with the whole large faculty. I was pretty much alone in what I believed in those days. Um, and yet they hired me. Knowing what they were getting, they hired me. And then a few years later, I came up for tenure and I was fairly treated. Uh, I was fairly evaluated. It was a very rigorous process. You know, most most people did not get tenure. You know, we don't tenure them from within as, as, um, as, as often as some other places. Uh, but I was very fortunate, very blessed to get tenure. I was treated fairly. Uh, and, and then I was endowed, uh, I'm sorry, installed in the, uh, the McCormick uh, Chair in Jurisprudence, the chair that had been held by this distinguished line of, of people going back to Edward S. Corwin and, uh, and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and then when I proposed the Madison program, and instead of telling me to, to, to go jump in the lake, uh, the university administration under uh, President Harold Shapiro and uh, Provost uh, Jeremiah Ostreicher, accepted my proposal and um, we launched the Madison program, which is now in its 21st year and uh, has been built into a major force on campus. Uh, I have been treated very well by my colleagues. The university has showered its honors and awards on me, the President's Award for Distinguished Teaching and, and so forth. Now, uh, are there other conservative academics who have been victims? Yes, no question about it. Victims of prejudice. Uh, have have has prejudice reared its head against others, job applicants and so forth here at Princeton. I regret to say I know of cases where that did happen. I'm embarrassed for the university to say that, where it did happen within certain departments at certain times. Very regrettable. But I'm no victim. I was never victimized. I was never mistreated. Quite the opposite. That's why I say I'm blessed. Blessed to have been here. So grateful. Uh, to uh, have been able to make my career here. And I found that uh, I can teach the courses I want to teach. Nobody tells me I can't uh, say in my lectures what I want to say. <laughs> Nobody tells me not to say uh, that. I'm not forced to say things that uh, I don't want to say. I'm, 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 I, uh, you know, the, the university has not compelled us to, to uh, attend ideologically biased training sessions and things like uh, things like that that go on at other universities. Our university formally embraced and endorsed, adopted the University of Chicago free speech principles six years ago, back in 2015. But even before that, free speech was respected on campus. And while I was the, as far as I know, the only uh, real conservative or conservative in my stripe in any event on the Princeton faculty when I arrived, in the mid 1980s, in 1985, fall of 1985, uh, there were a few, uh, very small number of Republicans, but they were very uh, eager to point out that they weren't conservatives; they were Republicans. <laughs> uh, while I was the only one, at least that I knew about back then, 
the numbers have grown. So there's something like 30 uh, members of the faculty known to me uh, with whom I regularly interact who are conservative. Uh, we have conservatives of different stripes. Some are the more libertarian oriented conservatives, some are more traditional uh, uh, conservatives. Uh, but that's that's a pretty darn good for a small university. I mean, we're, we're not a big university. We're a small university. For a small university, that's a pretty large number of, uh, of conservative faculty. And I've always gotten along splendidly uh, with my uh, liberal or progressive uh, faculty uh, colleagues. Uh, you know, we've we've worked together. I, I have this wonderful experience, of course, with teaching uh, with Cornell West, my dear beloved friend, Cornell West, my brother. Um, uh, I, I've, I've also taught with other uh, progressive uh, faculty members, and those have been wonderful experiences. Uh, I've been the guest lecturer in courses by, my, uh, uh, by some of my uh, liberal professors who want their students to, uh, to experience uh, a, a genuine conservative uh, talking with them, which speaks well for them, that they want their students to be exposed to competing points of view. I certainly want that, as you know, Billy, from being in my classes, uh, I don't just assign conservative readings, I assign, you know, far left uh, readings, progressive readings. Uh, when you uh, do the week, for example, in our civil liberties class on uh, abortion and uh, life issues, uh, they they not only read people, strong defenders of the pro-life uh, position like, like uh, Marianne Glendon and Michael Paulson, they also read people very strongly on the other side, like Peter Singer. I, I always assign uh, Peter Singer's um, famous article, Killing Babies Isn't Always Wrong, which is the defense not only of abortion, but even of infanticide, of the morality of infanticide. And that's because I, I want students to hear what's to be said uh, by a, a very powerful uh, advocate of a view strongly at variance uh, with, with, with my own view. And uh, I, I praise and honor my, those of my liberal or progressive colleagues who do the same, who make sure that their students uh, encounter and get to consider in a fair-minded way conservative perspectives. And, and many have invited me in, into their classes to give guest lectures for that purpose. So, so Professor George, I think, first off, that's so wonderful that, you know, you, you do try to present both sides. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about, how we need to, you know, be committed to the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. But if we only ever hear one side of that argument our entire lives, and then at some point, you know, in your mid thirties, someone very charismatic presents another side you had never even considered, then, then, then your quote unquote sure foundation could, you know, fall apart very, very quickly. And so I think for that reason, you, you know, you're doing such a wonderful job of, of um, helping it in, in, in mentoring students of really both sides of the aisle, not just conservatives. Um, but no, certainly you are, uh, Billy, I've always prided myself uh, on being a, a good professor. I've certainly tried to be a good professor, not only to my conservative students, but to my liberal or progressive students mm -hmm. as well. I, I owe them every bit as much as I owe my conservative students. Now, uh, I've, I've sort of had a special role with Princeton's conservative students over the years, just because there aren't a lot of conservative, even, even now that there are as many as 30 of us, uh, that's still a, a pretty small minority. And so conservative students, uh, you know, look for some faculty support. And uh, since my profile is pretty high, uh, they often come to me. And I, I've enjoyed, very much enjoyed and valued being a mentor to um, the conservative students and an advisor to the conservative uh, groups. 
But that doesn't mean that I value my liberal students uh, any less or that I uh, put any less effort into uh, uh, teaching and mentoring them. Um, and, and it's not something I have to force myself to do. It's something I love to do and I, and I want to do and enjoy doing. And that's something that a true educator does and says. So uh, first off, thank you very, very much for that. Um, so then I guess, you know, speaking a little bit more about those uh, conservative students, do students considering becoming more politically engaged or worrying that doing so may endanger future opportunities, whether career or, or otherwise, what, what words of wisdom do you give to, to your conservative students? Well, I completely understand the worries and concerns that students have about the possible impact on their future educational and professional opportunities of stating unpopular truths or stating unpopular beliefs, things they believe to be true. I get it. Obviously, no one got into Princeton without being pretty ambitious, right, Billy? I'm not letting a secret out of the bag. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm revealing that Princeton students got here because they're ambitious. They want to. They they want to achieve in life. They want to be something. Uh, they want to. Uh, they they want to have high status. They want to have good incomes. They want to be influential. They want to be important, and that's all fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Now, those should not be one's ultimate values. You know, those are secondary values. They're instrumental values. They're not what life's really all about. Uh, wealth is great, but, but not good in itself. It's good only as a means to doing good things with it. Influence is wonderful. It's good, but not as an end in itself, only as a means to using your influence for good ends. Same with social standing. It's not bad to have high social standing or to aspire to have high social standing, but don't think of it as an end in itself. It's not that, it's a means. So what are the things that are ends in themselves? Faith, that's what's really important and not derivative. Family, another thing that's not secondarily important, that's primarily important. Friendship, that's a good in itself, not just an instrumental value. It has a lot of instrumental value as well if you have you have friends, you get all sorts of good things as a result of having uh, friends, but the friendship itself can't be reducible to its instrumental uh, value. Uh, and virtues uh, like uh, integrity, honesty, uh, uh, being an honorable person, being a decent person, kind, compassionate, those are the things that, that really matter. But those secondary and instrumental values, they're fine. But when you see them in perspective, you realize that it's more important to have integrity and courage and to develop yourself. Because remember, you are shaping yourself every day. You are forming your character by your choices and actions every day. And it's important that you value integrity and courage so that you will exercise those virtues. You will do courageous things. You will never say what you don't believe, even if it will get you ahead, or even if saying what you believe will get you in some hot water or trouble. So my advice to young people, it's what I try to do in my, in, in, in my own life. And I know it's risky. I know it's risky. When people say, oh, it's easy for you to say, you're a tenured professor at Princeton. Well, that's true. Uh, but I mean, I 
you know, if I can speak up for myself, I also did it before I was a tenured professor at Princeton when I was a student and when I was an untenured professor. But, you know, whether I did or I didn't, the important thing is if you want to be, whoever you are, if you want to be a person of virtue, of integrity and courage, if you've got your values straight, you, you know what really matters is faith and family and friendship and integrity and honesty, then you're going to want to exercise those virtues. You're not going to want to hide you're not going to want to lay low just for the sake of getting ahead. If you're doing that, then you're prioritizing wealth and status and influence and professional standing and so forth over what really matters in life. So it's a question of getting your value straight. And I think if you do that, you'll be willing to take some risks, some serious risks of getting labeled, of getting branded, of getting called names, but you're developing a character. You're developing virtues that are just critical to being the kind of person you should want to be. So what I'm hearing is maybe you should start a new course at Princeton called What Matters Most <laughs> and then just talk about exactly that. Because I, I mean, that is as inspiring as anything you've, you've said today, Professor George. And I think it connects well to what we were talking about in terms of unity within our nation as a whole, because currently everything around us tells us that it's, you know, it, it doesn't say family is the most important. You should talk about that with people or, or, or friendships, but it's instead it's uh it's wokeism or it is certain elements of, of politics or whatever else that should be our first identifier as human beings, as opposed to the fact that we are all human beings. We are all connected in so many, there's more that unites us than what divides us. And I wish that was a message that was, uh, more propagated throughout our nation. So uh, uh, as we're coming towards the end of this conversation, if you were to recommend a couple of books for those interested in learning more about conservatism, what would those be? Well, um, of course, there are various types of conservatism. There's, there's, <laughs> there's True. I'm, it's there's probably not the best question to narrow it down. All but. the great debates our debates among the representatives of the different schools of, uh, of, of conservatism. And one of the problems with the progressive domination or hegemony uh, in the academy is that uh, when, when conservatism is discussed or represented at all, it's represented as if it's a unified monolithic thing. Mm. And, you know, here's your reading from conservatism and, and, and then, you know, we, we decide whether we like that or don't like that. Um, but actually, conservatism is a label for many different things, and there are important debates within uh, conservatism. Um, there's some classic works that uh, anybody who's a serious, who serious, seriously wants to study conservatism should, uh, should read, or some classic authors. Edmund Burke. You know, now, you know, he was not actually a member of the conservative party. Uh, he was a member of the other part, the Whig part. But uh, he's really one of the founding fathers of modern conservatism. And his conservatism put a lot of emphasis on tradition and the importance of tradition and the role that traditions play in uh, enabling the conditions to be sustained for humane, civilized living. Um, 20th century writers. Eric Vogelin, V-O-E-G-E-L-I-N, a, uh, a German refugee uh, from the Nazis, 
who wrote um, an important book in the 1950s based on lectures he gave in Chicago called The New Science of Politics. Uh, Leo Strauss, uh, a more familiar name, also a, a refugee from, uh, from the Nazis, a, a Jewish scholar, who uh, had many important books, but the, the one that I would recommend is called Natural Right and History. Um, you know, William F. Buckley's classic book that he wrote when he was a student called God and Man at Yale, criticizing uh, Yale's, uh, uh, what he claimed was a descent into liberal secularism and the abandonment of its Christian heritage. That is still a very interesting book to read. And in a certain sense, a kind of founding document of, uh, of modern conservatism. Uh, and then in, you know, any of the areas, the specific areas of policy, uh, that, that we need to consider, there are important writings by conservatives, uh, uh, in economics, uh, for example, and they're compete again, competing schools of, of thought. I mean, conservatives are united in the idea of the importance of the market, but there are legitimate and important debates about when intervention in the market is desirable or what sorts of regulations, including regulations of the market itself are desirable. So you might read Milton Friedman, for example, for a strong libertarian approach to uh, economic matters, but you should also read Friedrich Hayek, uh, who is sometimes wrongly regarded as a libertarian, but actually was not that. He was certainly a conservative. He certainly believed in the market. He believed in the market for the right reasons, that markets tend to drive prices down and quality uh, up, that, that markets have lifted millions and millions of people out of, out of poverty. We know uh, from historical experience what, uh, the, what a catastrophe the social ownership of the means of production uh, turns out to be, socialism uh, turns out to be. But uh, if you read around in that literature, just in this one area, for example, but the same is true in other areas as well, if you just read around in the literature, you'll find really important differences and even debates among uh, uh, conservative economic writers, the sort of heroes, the, the, uh, the, the Mount Olympus of, of conservative uh, economists. And you'll find the same when it comes to foreign policy, uh, for example, conservatives who are more interventionist conservatives who are definitely anti-interventionist, those who see a robust place for America in the world and for the projection of American power for the sake of American values, values that we believe are, are not merely American values, but we as Americans believe are universal values. And then conservatives who, who say the less we have to do with other countries or get involved in their affairs, the better. <laughs> You know, we should we should stick to our knitting, you know, stay here at home and stay out of foreign entanglements and certainly out of uh, foreign military uh, actions. Um, same on some social issues. Uh, so there's there's a whole sort of palette of conservative ideas. There are many differences of opinion, differences of approach, uh, rich bodies of literature to uh, uh, to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you so much for kind of expanding my my own personal mind on that, and 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 I think that goes back to the idea of conservatism as a unifying theme, because there's actually so there's a little bit for every everyone within it, uh, you know. It, but 
as long as these certain principles of commitment to the to the Constitution, to the Declaration, and and, and certainly a few other principles, there is so much at the margins to be filled in by great robust debate and discussion that you are helping lead at Princeton University and really across the entire nation. And so for that reason, we're so incredibly grateful for you, Professor George, for coming onto the podcast today. And uh, we certainly hope to have you again. It's my pleasure, Billy. Thanks for having me on and I look forward to coming back. Absolutely. And we would also like to thank our audio editor, Jermaine Washington, and we will see you all next time on the Princeton Tory podcast.